Jesus' name, amen. So as you know, here we are coming to the end of this book. We've been in this book for several months. And um, Paul, in chapter 4, he made a turn toward the practical. It wasn't that in the first three chapters he didn't say anything that was practical, but his emphasis was theological. And by the same token, in the second part of the book, starting in chapter 4, it's not that he's not saying anything theological, but his emphasis is practical. And so we've talked about a number of, of things as we have... We have uh, been discussing since the beginning of chapter 4. We talked about uh, the importance of sexual purity, of brotherly love, what happens to us when we die. We talked about uh, the return of Christ and what that will be like. And we also looked at what it means to have healthy relationships within the body, healthy relationships between the congregation and spiritual leaders and, and healthy relationships between God's people and one another. And so this, this week, we are looking at another practical issue that these Christians were dealing with. And we have to remember just a little bit of the story. The Apostle Paul went to the city of Thessalonica, and no one in that city knew the Lord. And he began to preach the gospel. And when he preached the gospel in that city, it turned the lives of those who heard the gospel upside down. And um, there, were, there were people for the first time in their life, they experienced what it was to know that all of their guilt and shame was washed away once and for all. They experienced what it was to know that they could have a relationship with a personal God who actually cared for them. They experienced what it was to have a life that had meaning and purpose and had some eternal reason behind it beyond just the here and now. And so there are a lot of positive things that, that were a blessing to them, but also there were a lot of things that were difficult for them. One of the things that we know, those of us who know Jesus, who follow Jesus, we know that, that it isn't true that when we follow Jesus, all of our problems go away. And, and for some of these, they, they probably felt like their problems were multiplying now that they became a follower of Jesus. They were experiencing new persecution that they had never known. They were experiencing ostracism from the community. They probably had to deal with some legal problems simply because they were Christians. It reminds me of, of uh, the time that we spent in Vancouver. And, and many of you know, we, were, uh, we had a ministry in Vancouver before we were here. And uh, that ministry was in a part of the city that's called Little India. And it was, it was just a beautiful place. It was a beautiful situation. It was a beautiful church. But most of all, it was full of beautiful people. We saw people come to know the Lord from um, Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, witchcraft, atheism, all kinds of different backgrounds. People were coming to know the Lord, and it was like, it was like the United Nations. We had people there from every tribe and tongue. It was so beautiful to see all that God did in our midst. But I remember uh, the, the main people group in our community uh, were Sikhs. And there was a, there was a man in our church who was sharing the gospel with this other Sikh man. And, and uh, the Sikh man came in one day. He, he, he came to the church. And, and normally Sikhs wear turbans. And they would wear typically traditional Indian clothing. But this man came this day dressed with a baseball cap, with dark sunglasses, with uh, a trench coat. He was, he was so incognito, he was obvious. But he wanted to talk about Jesus. 
He knew this man. He saw the authentic difference that Jesus made in his life, and he struggled with whether or not he should follow him. And I remember him sitting in my office and him saying, you know, if, 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 if we become followers of Jesus, it means that we're going to lose our business. It means that no one's going to shop at our store. There's going to be a price that we're going to have to pay if we're going to become a follower of Christ. These things that we're talking about, becoming a follower of Christ and the, and the kind of cost that it, it might require in our life, is, is not something that's just restricted to the first century when Paul was wandering around uh, Asia Minor in Greece. These are things that affect people in the world today. It affects us today. There's a cost to following Jesus and this is certainly what they were experiencing in this city of Thessalonica. And so it's in the middle of this that those who were dealing with this were asking the question, what is, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? remember hearing the story of a college student who was seeking that. He wanted to know God's will for his life. He needed a car. He didn't have much money. He wondered if he should buy one. And he was struggling with this, and he asked God, God, show me. Show me what I should do. And then he went to bed that night, and he had all kinds of dreams. And in the dreams, everything was in yellow. In a succession of dreams, everything was yellow. And then he, he thought he knew the answer. That morning, he got up. He went to a dealership. And when he was walking through the dealership, he noticed there was a yellow car. And as he got closer to the car, he noticed that it had completely yellow interior. It was yellow inside and out. I mean, this was the yellowest car he had ever seen. And he knew this is God's will. The dealer said, do you want to test drive it? He said, no, this is God's will for me. I need to buy this car. So, um, so this guy went and he bought the, the, the car, this yellow car inside and out. And you know what he discovered over time? He got a lemon. He got a lemon. We need, we need to be careful about the things that we assume about God's will. Sometimes it's wishful thinking. Sometimes we tell ourselves God's will is something that we want to come to be. Maybe, maybe it's a, a certain relationship that we want. We want it badly. We want it to be God's will, that that be our relationship. Or maybe it's a certain job. Or um, maybe it's a certain goal in life. If we achieve that goal in life, we'll experience We'll, we'll experience what God wants for us. Maybe that's God's will for our lives. But, but actually, when we're searching for God's will in the Scripture, it's way more simple than that. And this is my hope as we consider God's Word together today. If, if Christ defines who we are, our circumstances won't. If Christ defines who we are, our circumstances won't. So Paul gives three qualities that ought to define the way that every Christian lives our life. Three qualities. Actually, these are commands. These are commands. The first one is to be joyful. To be joyful. He says in verse 16, rejoice always. This word here for rejoice simply means to be in a state of happiness and well-being, to be glad. So you think about this. This is kind of a, this is kind of a, difficult command, right? He's commanding us to be joyful. The, the New Living Translation captures the essence of the present tense, which means this needs to be a continual thing in the Christian's life. Always be joyful. Now, this is, this is a tough thing to think about because, because uh, we know that we go through ups and downs in life, and how can we command that? Um, 
the military has something called um, mandatory fun. Has anybody ever heard of that, mandatory fun? Uh, any hands? Any, um, I, was, I was once stuck at Fort McClellan, Alabama. This was uh, in 1990. This was leading up to the Persian Gulf War. And uh, we couldn't go home for Christmas Exodus. Normally a two-week period where you can sometimes go home and see your family. And we're stuck on the base. And the colonel wanted to... Um, he, he wanted to, to make sure that we were happy during this two weeks where we were stuck on this base during Christmas. And so uh, he gave an order that we were to have mandatory fun. And so then we went to an event and we sat there the whole time and we had to wear our dress uniform. And uh, every time the colonel walked in the room, everyone smiled. It, it felt like we were in a third world dictatorship. Well... So when we hear words like this, always rejoice, and we hear this about the Christian life, we say, well, how, how can this be possible? How can God just command us to always rejoice? Well, it's important that we understand what he means by the command if we're going to know what this looks like in real life. This doesn't mean that um, we should be happy about everything that happens to us. It doesn't mean that we should be happy about everything that happens to us. Maybe... Someone you love is suffering. Maybe someone close to you has died. Maybe you've just heard news from the doctor that you have cancer. Maybe you found out that your spouse ran off with some other person. He's not saying that we should be happy about those things, that we should be happy that those things happen to us. He also isn't saying that we should be hedonistic pleasure seekers looking for the next fix. This also isn't what he, is, what he has in mind for the Christian. Actually, I think more of what we have in mind for the Christian is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, where it says about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And the reality is, is that there is a kind of joy that goes deeper than momentary happiness. In fact, this is what we're all looking for. This is what, what, what every person is after, and it explains most of the reasons why we do what we do in life. We're looking for this happiness, and this happiness that we're searching for constantly evades us. And so we go from one thing to the next thing. Some, for some of us, it means that, that we'll work 18 hours a day, believing that at the end of that, that, uh, that, that rainbow, there'll be a pot of gold that'll make us happy. Some of us, we look for certain relationships where we feel as if we can just be connected with a certain person, then finally we'll be happy. Others of us look for it in achievement. We try to go out and accomplish uh, big things. We try to, 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 to flatten mountains and raise the plains. We try to do things that will always be remembered, and our hope is, is that somehow we'll find happiness in those things. And, and for any of us who have pursued those things, we all know that at the end of the day, the more we pursue those things, the more they blow up in our face, and the more we realize that those things never gain for us the kind of joy, the deep-seated joy that we were looking for. And so, where is this found? Where is this joy found? I love, I love Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes it's hard to understand, but it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's a beautiful book. 
And um, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 9, and then 12 and 13, he gives us, he gives us a beautiful picture of where we can find real joy and lasting happiness in life, the kind of joy that we can talk about here that Paul says, rejoice always. It says this, what gain has the worker from his toil? Think about the person who is working hard by the sweat of their brow. What, what gain is there in all that, ultimately? And he says in verse 12, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Well, we agree with that. I would think everyone would agree with that. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. I remember coming across this passage and it was like an aha moment in my life in my early 20s. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. How do we do that? How do we take pleasure in the mundane things of life? How do we take pleasure in our eating and our drinking and in our work? In the common, ordinary experiences of life? Well, he answers that at the end of the verse. This is God's gift to man. How do we experience true, lasting joy in life that we're all seeking? It comes to us as a gift from God. It comes to us as a result of a relationship with him. It's the very thing that every person is searching after and looking for, and what God is saying is, is that he offers this in a relationship with himself. Paul knew this joy. There's a story in Acts chapter 16 about a, a time when Paul went into the city of Philippi, and he went to Philippi before he went to Thessalonica. And when he went to that city, he did the same thing he did in every city. He preached the gospel, and all kinds of things were happening in that city. But, but some very unusual things were happening in this city, as there was this, I don't know, another way to explain it more succinctly than this. She was a demon-possessed slave girl who was a fortune teller who raked in a lot of dough for her masters. And she followed Paul and Silas around, and she was shouting all kinds of things. And finally, Paul had enough of it, and he exercised the demon out of the young girl. And then, as a result of what happened, she no longer was fortune-telling, and the, the owners of this girl were furious with Paul and Silas, and so they dragged them before the officials. And this is what it says. Paul, Paul understood this life. He understood this joy that we can experience regardless of our circumstances. This is what he said. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, imagine being beaten with rods in a crowd of people. They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That was very painful. About midnight... What were they doing? Imagine, if that happened to you or me, what would we be doing? What were they doing? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. God was doing something supernatural in their life in the midst of their trials and struggles. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. What do we have? We have in the story of this man, we have the story of this man in his life, someone who lived what he taught, someone who experienced joy in the midst of his struggles and his difficult circumstances that he faced in his life. And do you know that God has the power to give you joy in the middle of the painful circumstances that you're facing right now? Here we are in a room full of people. All of you are carrying your own burdens. All of you are carrying your own struggles. Every one of us has our own web of relationships and people in our lives and things that we're concerned about. And the promise that we're given here, we wouldn't be given the command if God didn't give us the capacity. The promise that we're given here is that we can rejoice in the midst of anything and everything that we go through. In fact, this joy is supernatural and it's produced within the life of the Christian by the Holy Spirit. In fact, we read in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, notice that, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. First thing is, is that we are to be, prayer, we are to be uh, joyful. And the second thing is that we are to be prayerful, that we are to pray without ceasing. Now, a lot of us have heard this command many times in our lives, and we say, how is that possible? How does the Christian pray without ceasing? I mean, think about Paul. He wasn't a monk. Paul, Paul was a tent maker. He had work to do. Paul also did a lot of preaching and teaching and interacting with people. I mean, how could he give the command to pray without ceasing? Well, the first thing we can say about this is that Paul is not saying that we lay aside everything else so we don't eat or sleep or do anything but pray. But, but what, he, what he's saying is, is that we need to cultivate a life in which we see the Lord behind everything that goes on in our daily activities. Um, scholar, uh, New Testament scholar Leon Morse puts it this way. He says, he says, It is not possible for us to spend all of our time with the words of prayer on our lips. But it is possible for us to be all our days in the spirit of prayer. Realizing our dependence on God for all that we have and are, being conscious of his presence with us wherever we may be, and yielding ourselves continually to him to do his will. You see, God calls us to pray unceasingly. It means to recognize his presence behind everything and and uh, there, there are some, some theological truths that, that, that go behind this. We think about the fact that, that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. You know, there's nowhere, like we read in that psalm earlier, there's nowhere you can go where God is not already there. doesn't matter if you go into the, the highest parts of the heavens or the lowest parts of the sea. Even there, his right hand will guide us. It will hold us fast. There's nowhere we can go where God isn't there. Second thing, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Say, how can God keep up with all of these people in the world? Well, if God can call the, the heaven and earth into existence, don't you think he can know what's going on in this world that he's made? If he has that kind of power, he can do it. But another theological truth that is so important is that God is personal. God is personal. God wants a relationship with you. God wants to talk to you. He wants to hear from you. God, God wants to interact with you. And so everywhere we go, we, we, we cultivate a sense that God is present in all things. 
There's certain religious systems. Remember when we lived in Vancouver, we had many of the people that we knew who were from Hindu backgrounds, and one of the things that, that they would talk about is that God is the ground of all being. They believe God was one with everything. Now, Christians, we don't believe that God is in things, but we believe that he is everywhere. And the difference is, is that we believe that God is a personal being. That the things that happen to you matter to him. That he loves you and he cares for you and that you're important to him. So we have this picture of how he wants to interact with us through, through prayer. One of the best examples I've ever seen of this is, is from, a, from someone in our own church, one of our deacons. We were in a, in a deacons meeting and by the way, we are blessed with godly deacons in this church. We are blessed with godly deacons. But we were in a deacons meeting, and one of our deacons was talking, and in the meeting, all of a sudden, as he's speaking, he looks up to heaven, and he says, he was in the middle of making a point, he said, sorry, Lord, what I meant was, and then he went back and he started talking to us. It was as if he didn't even realize that he was now speaking to the Lord in the middle of what he was saying. He had cultivated such a sense of the presence of God that he was, he was interacting with the Lord when he was interacting with us. And this is what it means to pray unceasingly, to, to cultivate a sense. Now, we know theologically that God is everywhere, but to, but to, to, but to cultivate, uh, cultivate an awareness that God is everywhere. That's so important. We can have that relationship with him. The third thing that he commands is to be thankful. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, the beginning of verse 18. Now, a heart of thankfulness doesn't come naturally to most people. But it is the necessary byproduct of a genuine relationship with God. Why is that? Because, because we're interacting with him. We see him at work in everything that happens. Even in our most difficult circumstances, we see how he lifts us up and he carries us through those things. And we can't help but erupt with a heart of thankfulness to this, to this great God who is so good to us. It's a blessing to know that all of the troubles that we face, we don't go through them alone. That everything that we go through has a purpose, that he's using all of these things to conform us to the image of Christ. And when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we can always remember and take comfort in the fact that he will lead us through it. Sometimes we don't know how he's going to lead us through it, but we can say that he will lead us through it. And how do we have confidence in that? Well, not only does he promise to meet our needs in his word, but also we experience that as we go through the course of our life as Christians. So often as we go through troublesome times and difficulties, we see how God carried us through. And as we look back on the way that God carried us through in the past, we can have confidence that he'll carry us through in the future, even if we don't know what that future is. And so he ends with the summary statement in verse 18, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is God's will for our life? Paul doesn't say it's, it's God's will right now for you to take that job or uh, it's, it's God's will for you to take that class or it's God's will for you to uh, buy that boat. <laughs> no, what is God's will for us? That we be joyful, that we be prayerful, that we be thankful. Just want to take some points of personal application from this. Number one, Number one, who we are is more important than what we do. Who we are is more important than what we do. 
Now, some, some people think that our lives only count if we do something historic, if we do something maybe like the Wright brothers in 1903 who introduced flight, or maybe to live a life and be the next Winston Churchill to uh, rule, the, rule the nations or defeat the great enemy at the doorstep. And we think about that as a life that really matters, a life that really makes a mark. And because of this, because we're always bogged down and weighed down by these, these greater ambitions, sometimes Christians are, 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 um, uh, face paralysis by analysis. Have you ever heard of that? Maybe you've experienced it. Paralysis by analysis. We don't know what to do. We can't move in our life. We just seem stuck where we are because we just overanalyze everything. What God calls us to do is to simply love him, to simply follow him, and to continue to do whatever's in front of us. Here's an example. I I like this quote from, from Augustine. Augustine was an early church father. And at first you're going to look at this and you're going to say, this is a weird statement. But it'll make sense as we read it. Augustine said, love God and do whatever you please. What is your first thought? Oh, I love God. I can do whatever I please. I can go rob a bank. Don't say you heard that in church. Um, No. No, we got to understand the rest of it. Love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Isn't that true? When you love someone, it's it's your heart's desire to please that person. Well, if we, if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, then our first impulse is, gonna do, is, to, is, to, be what, is to do what pleases him. And, and this is how we go through the course of our life. This is how we decide between A and B. How does this decision honor God in my life? And as we go through the course of life, the Lord leads us along. Jesus tells us that in Matthew 6.33. It says this in Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. After you seek after Christ, after you li- as you go on living for him, he will open up whatever necessary doors he needs to open up in our life, and he will close whatever uh, necessary doors and windows in our life that, that he chooses to close. And it's through that course of following him that he will lead us along in all of the decisions that we make. And so we can simply be content wherever we are, trusting in his providence and in his sovereignty over our life. And besides, God can, can move the levers of this world in ways that we cannot imagine or think. Think about the story of Joseph. Joseph was there. He was he was in prison, and he goes from a, a dungeon in Egypt, and the next moment he finds himself as second in command of all of, of that nation. God, God can, can move the hearts and men at his disposal and at his will. What God is calling us to do is simply trust him. You see, who we are is more important than what we do. Number two, God takes pleasure in our joy. God takes pleasure in our joy. Despite popular opinion, God does not want us to be miserable. Despite popular opinion, God does not want us to be miserable. You know, some Christians, some Christians think that the more miserable they are, the more spiritual they are. But, but that isn't the case. A lot of wonderful retreats out there, but I remember as a kid, remember as a kid going to some retreats, men's retreats, and the men would gather together, and they were so sour. They, they seemed to be so conflicted and miserable 
you see that and you say, that, that's, not God's, that's not God's will for the Christian life to, to be miserable. What does he say? Rejoice always. Think about, um, think about when you see uh, maybe, a, maybe a child playing with, a, with, a, with, an, with, a, with an animal, maybe with a dog. You see a child and a puppy and a plain fetch, and that child is throwing a, throwing a stick out, and the, the puppy is happy, and the puppy is grabbing that stick and coming back to the child, and the child laughs. And the, and, the, and the puppy is thrilled, and they're just having a great time together, and that little child grabs hold of that, that, that puppy and, and rolls around in the grass with that puppy, and they just have fun together. And, and as an adult, when you see that, it brings you joy in your life, right? You know that we're God's creatures? God created us to, to commune with him forever. And do you, do you know that God wants us, actually wants us, to live a life that's joyful? That God takes pleasure when he sees us filled with the, the life that he has given us. That it's not God's plan for us to be miserable. Number three, gaining Christ is far better than anything we give up in this world. Gaining Christ is far better than anything that we give up in this world. I remember just recently, hearing about an elderly lady and her number one concern as she reflected on her life, and she was very philosophical in her life, was that she did not live her life in vain. And I think that all of us will be asking that question as we go on in life. Have I lived a life that's mattered? Have I lived a life that's made a difference? And the beauty is, is that a life lived for Christ is a life that will never be lived in vain. Paul, Paul had... Everything. Paul was born into a, it must have been an important family. He was a citizen of Rome. Most people weren't citizens of Rome. That was a great privilege. Paul was well-educated. He was sent when he was a little kid to Jerusalem, and he studied under the great theologian Gamaliel, one of the greatest theologians of his time, still famous to this day, 2,000 years later. Paul uh, was part of the main religious establishment. He was moving up quicker than his contemporaries. Paul had it all from the world's perspective. If he continued down that road, who knows what he would have had. He was brilliant. He probably had some money. He was somebody who was important. He was highly respected. Everyone in the community loved him and they thought highly of him. I mean, from a world's vantage point, Paul had it all. But notice what he says about his life. As he reflects, after he found Christ, he says... In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, he said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That means he was at the very top. Of, of, the, of the religious uh, hierarchy. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he started out his life attacking Christians, imprisoning Christians. He was there when Stephen uh, was killed. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as 
loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All of the things of the world, all of the things that he had before, he counts them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, what we gain in our relationship with Christ is far greater than anything we give up in the world. We have him. And number four, finally, when we have Christ, we have all that we could ever want or need. When we have Christ, we, could have all, we have all that we could ever want or need. As we notice here, he has evidences of God's work in our life. Their joy, their prayerfulness, their thankfulness. And the question I have for you today is, is has this been your experience? Have you, do you know this kind of joy that Paul is describing here? The beautiful thing is that God produces that in his people. Maybe, maybe you've never come to a place where you have trusted him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never come to a place where you've entered into a relationship with him. The Bible tells us that, that God made us for relationship. God made us to know him. But, but we decided to go our own way and we turned our back on him. And just as in any relationship, when we sin against another, it creates a separation in the relationship. And that was a separation that we could not bridge by our own works or anything that we could do. And so God, having mercy on us, sent his son Jesus to be a sacrifice for us. That Jesus bore our sin on the cross. That Jesus died in our place. So that through faith in him, we can have all of our sins washed away. We can have our life transformed. We can have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we can be totally new people. And it's from that relationship with him that all of these other things spring. This joy, this thankfulness, this, this life of, uh, of, of recognizing the presence of God and, and prayer and all that we do and say. Where do these things come from? Where do these, where do these, these um, evidences come from? They come from knowing Christ. They come from gazing upon Christ. I can't explain it any other way. There's a song that, uh, that I, have, I have loved since I was a teenager. How many of you, you know Keith Green? Keith Green has a song called, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. And I remember in hard days in my life, whether it be, uh, must have been so annoying in basic training when I would be in the shower and I would sing this song with all my heart because I was so miserable there. Or other times in my life when I'm driving along in the car and, and uh, I am feeling Terrible. I'm feeling miserable. Maybe something's happened. I sing this song. This song helps me to look beyond my circumstances to the one who holds everything in the palm of his hand. And the words are simple. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. I want to take your word and shine it all around. But first, help me just to live it, Lord. And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown. For my reward is giving glory to you. Oh, Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burns with holy fear. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. 
Your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. I hope you've experienced that. I'm sure that some of you are in a time in your life where you're facing crisis, where you're facing a trial that you never thought you would go through. But you know that you have a Savior who's alive, who loves you and who cares for you. And he'll mend up your brokenness. He'll bind you together. And he'll walk you through that storm so that no matter what circumstances we face in this life before us, we can have a deep-seated joy, a heart of thankfulness that's derived from a relationship that knows no bounds. No bounds in this world or in time itself. And the question is, is whether or not you've experienced that. God wants you to experience that. Jesus died so that you could experience that. I hope you know that hope. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for this privilege that you've given us to meditate upon your word. We thank you that it is so practical.